Happy Pentecost Sunday, church. Some of you didn't even know it was Pentecost, did you? feel like I'm telling you it's Christmas and you're just waking up. This is Pentecost Sunday. You just heard the story. Let me tell it again. About 10 days after Jesus left, the disciples were still huddled together, same room, Jerusalem. When just as he said, all of a sudden, on one day, a mighty rushing wind of the NIV calls it a violent wind could be heard. You've been in storms kind of like that. You sort of batten down the hatches and all of Jerusalem heard the noise and they started to gather uh, in the streets to, to hear what was going on. And about the same time, this pillar of fire <laughs> split and what the New Testament calls tongues of fire started to rest over the top of every one of the disciples' heads. And when this happened, they all started to speak in different languages. And the people from Jerusalem, because they were there for the Feast of Pentecost, had come from other nations, other countries, and they all spoke different languages. So when they heard the rushing wind and they ran in and they looked, they saw the fire over the heads of the apostles and they heard them speaking in a language that they understood they said to themselves wait a second how's this happen because these people are all from Galilee they all speak the same language how is it that we all hear in our own language those of us who study the old and new testament together see something like the tower of Babel standing on its head in this moment and tower of Babel it was all of the nations coming together, trying to be one, splintered in a thousand directions. And on the day of Pentecost, it was all of those directions regathered to one under the gospel. This is the birth of the church. That's the birth of the church. Sometimes we think about Pentecost as if it were a personal experience or we focus on the specifics and say, well, what does it mean to speak in tongues and all that? And I think we lose the big picture. In Pentecost, something else is born. Like something was born in us, something larger than us was born, and it is the church, the church of Jesus Christ, gathered from different nations under one Lord, one gospel, one faith, and one baptism. What a powerful story. Did somebody do something? You just ought to nod or uh-huh. You ought to do something. Man, oh man. Bunch of white Americans in this room. My goodness. So when we are genuinely born again, when that spirit conceives new life, in us, we have an innate desire to be in community with other people. Now, I realize when I say that, that some of you come from bad church experiences. And so you're filling that with all sorts of baggage about churches that you grew up in or maybe ones that you still are part of or you know about, and you're, you're starting to fill that definition I just said with all that stuff 
that you brought with you. Can you, for a moment, can you set that aside? If you want, you can pick it up on your way out. But just for a moment, if I can talk to you, can you set that aside? Other people come with deep um, introvert strains. You, people drain you. You like them, just not many of them. So you thrive in small groups. And whenever you hear me say that God has given you a desire to be with other people, you start locking up. You're thinking, oh, 1,500 people. There, I didn't say 1,500 people. I said you have a natural, if nascent, desire to turn outward and face a healthy community. God put that there. Now, I took that, take that back. He didn't put it there. He brought it with him. How can it be otherwise? For God himself is not the solitude of one. He is the communion of three. So when the Holy Spirit births in you a desire for other people, just so we're clear about this, this is not something he's giving you. This is something he is. You are not his project. You are his home. They're not working on you. He is expressing himself through you so that when he fully has you, you turn not inward upon yourself and try to pull people into your little world. You look outward onto other people and you commit to a community of believers. A few years ago, I put this image up on the screen of Rublev's Trinity. He painted it, Andre Rublev painted it uh, in the 15th century, maybe about a hundred years before Luther moved the furniture in the church. And uh, what he was trying to depict was what I just said, that God was not a single individual sitting on a throne he was a communion of three. Now, this, for some of you, is as far as we'll get this morning. If this is, and you just sort of camp here and soak for a while, and we'll come, listen to this on podcast or something, and you can pick the rest of it. But this is a major shift for some of you because you grew up with an American culture that sees God as a king, a sovereign, or a judge. And as long as you see God in that metaphor, there can only be one. And it's a guy, usually not a one, sitting on a throne, waiting for the world to end, for you to get there, for the judgment to begin. And you're kind of wondering your chances at this. Now you have all sorts of theological ways to get through that, but that's what's in your mind. God, but what I'm telling you is the Bible says God is a communion, not just an individual. And that changes everything. Do you understand? That changes everything. When you start to, to think about what it means to be made in God's image, then you think about belonging to a community, not withdrawing and being just an individual. So you believe in the Trinity 
Not because you understand the Trinity. Of course you don't understand the Trinity. You believe in the Trinity because with it, you understand everything else. I come in this room at about 4.30 in the morning every Sunday, sit in one of these chairs. I don't see a thing, you know. It's dark. I know where the aisles are. Walk around, think, pray. But then about 6 o'clock, trust me, some of you are still in bed, haven't rolled over for the first time. Take my word for it. A few minutes before 6, I look up at these windows and I see the light. The light of the sun is starting to come through the windows. And as it rises and gets more intense, the stronger the sun gets, the more it lights up stuff in the room. Then I look up and go, oh, there's the mic stands and the pews and the cameras and the sound system. But I don't stand here looking at the windows. I get alongside the windows and I look at everything else. That's the way the Trinity works. You understand it not when you sit looking at it, trying to figure out how three can be one, You understand it when you get alongside it and its light begins to enlighten other things in your life and you realize this is how humanity works best. This is how relationships work best. This is the way the world is going, whether you believe it or not. It is the regathering of people from different backgrounds, ethnicities, and cultures into one body under the gospel of Jesus Christ. The first installment for this is your marriage. Your marriage is not your own private little love affair. It is the bringing of two people into one. Just as the one who made you is three and yet one. And in your marriage, you are placed inside of a larger community as one. And you bear collective witness in front of the world. So that everything that happens to your marriage reflects ultimately on the community that you belong to. And that community ultimately bears witness to the world. You understand everything that you do as an individual has social consequences because you were made by a communion, not by an individual. So you can talk about private rights if you want, but your private rights have public consequences. We all bear it, for better or worse. (laughs) All right, I'll say it. That's right. That's good. That's right. Take a moment and think about This triune community, I've tried to reenact it, however, poorly. As I'm reading in the Gospel of John, it looks like Jesus is talking about this Trinity in ways that they share the same mission. He says in John chapter 5, the Son can do nothing 
by himself. He can do only what he sees the Father doing because whatever the Son or the Father does, the Son also does. It's not like they have three different missions. It's not like the Father. I'm not sure which chair he's in. Some of you are sure. I'm just not. It's not like the Father all of a sudden has a mission and the other two don't. It's not like the Father says, I got an idea. I'm going to save the world. You do it. It's that all three of them share the same mission at the same time. When one of them has a thought, the other two have the same thought at the same time. John says that they shared the same power. He says in John chapter 5, the Father judges no one but has entrusted all judgment to the Son so that all may honor the Son as they honor the Father. You don't, you don't know of an organization like this. I think you know of organizations that are trying to be like this. We're certainly trying to be like this. But you don't know of an organization where a person takes all of his power and divests it to the other two so that the power he has is never his own power. He's given his own power away. The power he has belongs to the other two who have his. <laughs> Do you realize that in most organizations, when there is tension, people power up. They don't disperse power. Leaders in most organizations think, well, I'm the leader. I'm the one who's supposed to make this decision. See, that's where you're wrong. See, if it's real power, it has distributed itself along with mission so that other people who also believe in the mission could make the same decision with the power that you gave them. It says in John chapter 8, if I glorify myself, Jesus says, my glory is worthless. The one who glorifies me is the Father about whom you say he is our God. Oh, this is remarkable. That each member of the triune community takes the glory and gives it to the other two. That when the Father gets glory, the Son is not jealous. In fact, the Son thinks, if I do everything right, people will give their glory to the other. And the other is thinking, they're giving it to the Son. This is how God may seek his own glory without being an egotist. Because the glory that the Father seeks is never the Father's glory. It's the Son's glory who is seeking the glory of the Father. You still with me? I'm having fun anyway. I read in John chapter 15 that they share not only the same mission, power, and glory, they share the same cost. This one rattled me a bit. Jesus said, he who hates me hates my father as well. 
The people have seen my miracles, and yet they have hated both me and my father. See, if you all were thinking that the father had a plan to save the world, so he gave that mission to the son, and his job was to die on the cross. And that was the only suffering that God endured. You'll probably need to rethink that. What I'm telling you is, all three members of the triune God shared the same suffering, though in different expressions of it. You were raised to think the Son did all the suffering. There is not a cost that one absorbs, the other two do not also absorb, and at the same time. Theology class is over. Are you still okay? Let me tell you why this is important. Because if you were made in God's image, you naturally desire this kind of community. You may have gotten burned out in other churches and you're tired of organizations. You may be an introvert. But if you are made in God's image, you function best like this, not as an individual. No matter what you think, you can relearn other ways and your life will completely come alive. But this is how you, and there's one other thing. This is how all organizations work best. This is not just something made for the church. If I were the principal of a school, I'd want this for my school. It might be harder, but I'd want it. I may not be able to get there in one year or 10, but families, marriages, organizations function best like this because they were made in God's image. It's not like he has one blueprint for the church and another one for the rest of us. There is one blueprint and he says, when you function in community, you thrive. So in John chapter 17, I think I hear the furniture moving. In John chapter 17, Jesus starts to pray just before he leaves the world. And he starts saying things that you should never say if you stopped in the Old Testament. He says, Father, I'm leaving, but they're not. They're staying behind. And everything that you have given to me, I am giving to them. The glory that you gave me before the world began, I am giving them that glory. I sanctify myself so that they may be sanctified. I said these things while I was with them so that my joy may be in them and that their joy may be complete. Father, I pray that they may be one. Just as I am in you and you are in me, May they be, wait for it, in us. And it sounds to me 
as if God is moving the furniture and he's creating room at this table for someone else. Oh, this is a marvelous truth. Man, oh man, I know I've buried some of you right now in theology. You hardly take this, can you? Say, dude, just tell a story. I am. This is a story, a true one. I told you three years ago that when you think of prayer as coming to the table where God's Trinity sits, it changes prayer. You don't come to the table and just start blurting out stuff that you want. Dude, they have a conversation. You don't come walking into a conversation that has been going on like a billion years and saying, I got a need. Y'all stop talking now. It is better to open your scriptures and listen to the language of God while he speaks to himself in the scriptures and then get alongside one of them in your prayer and say to the other two, he's right about you. He's right about you. That's been true in my life too. And then just before you leave, maybe just before you leave, you look at the triune God and you say, you know, I can't go unless I tell you something that is really, really heavy on my heart right now. Can I tell you this? Now you have an audience. Man, I love you guys, but if you want to come and drop a list, send him an email. I mean, text him. He has moved the furniture at the table and created room for you to go and sit. And by the way, while I'm on it, this is what worship is too, by the way. Worship is not me coming into this sanctuary and hoping they sing my songs. Worship is joining into a conversation that is, oh, maybe a billion or two years old. And it is coming alongside the Father and saying to the Son exactly what he's been saying for the last four billion years. Only we use scripture and we use music to do it. Say, what if I don't like that music? Sing it anyway. It ain't your table. You'd be surprised what you walk away with when you come for somebody else. Mm. So the miracle of Pentecost, you knew I'd get there, is that it looks to me like God is adding a fourth chair at the table. Oh, this is beautiful. Only the fourth chair is not for you. It's for us. The room that God creates at the table is not meant to be occupied by an individual, but by a community. In fact, 
let me push the envelope. You can't come to the table unless you come with the community. Say, well, I don't like church. Well, I don't know what you're going to do. That's what the church is. Can I be straight up about this? This is the problem with so much of our outreach. We come out to the world trying to win individuals to Jesus regardless of the church. There isn't such a thing. In Pentecost, God does in the church exactly what he was doing in the Trinity. Let me prove it. In Acts chapter 4, they had the same mission. All believers were one in heart and mind. In Acts chapter 4, they had the same power. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of Christ, and much grace was upon them all. They had the same glory. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. They shared the same cost. No one claimed that his possessions were his own, but they shared everything they had. There was no needy persons among them for from time to time those who owned land sold them and bought the money and placed it at the disciples feet and it was distributed to anyone as he had need do you see that what God is doing in Pentecost is reestablishing what he has in the Trinity on the earth I'm not telling you that he invented the church in order to carry out the mission of Jesus I'm telling you, he invented the church because the church is the presence of Jesus in the world. That's totally different. Totally different. The church is not a bus taking people to heaven. The church is the kingdom of heaven on the earth. It's a portal. There is no way to get into the triune community except through the body that worships here. And there is no way for the body of Christ, the triune community of God, to get into the world except through the church that he has created. Okay? I'll say it. This is why Jesus said whatever. I mean, you have people, you have friends who say, I can't believe in God because of the church. They're right. I agree with them. That's exactly what Jesus intended. He basically said, there is no way for them to even comprehend me except through that fourth chair. And y'all are in it. So it matters how we live together as a church. And it matters what individual members do in society because whatever we do as individuals 
reflects the body we belong to, and the body we belong to reflects on the triune community. Let me make it short. The stakes are really big. So I would like to spend the balance of my time, all four minutes of it. Doggone it. Did you guys move the clocks? <laughs> Talking about that. Just yesterday, Jim Luttrell, he sent me a picture of a church in uh, Lincoln Castle in England. Look at this thing. Isn't that weird? Here's the story. In the 11th century, William the Conqueror built a castle, and part of the castle is a prison, a penitentiary. And the prison is built on the premise that prisoners should not be next to other prisoners. It's built on the law of separation, so their lives would not corrupt one another. So naturally, because they need God, they build a chapel. But when they built the chapel, they built individual walls in between each seat. So you can, like, come through a door, sit in your seat, can't see anybody else. You don't have to deal. All the introverts are like, oh, this is amazing. Let's build one of those. And then when the service is over, you just go. See, this is how some of us come to church. Figuratively, we come through a little door. We sit in our little chair. Some of us haven't moved since they parked the ark. <laughs> we sit in our little chair. We look to the front. How good was the service? I don't know. How good was he on that day? That is church. That, dude, that's a concert. Church is this. It's people you like and people you can't stand. It's some of your best friends and people you'd never choose to be around. That is the church. It's your only crack at coming to the triune God. You want to be saved? Get in it. That's how God gives us grace. So I think about viruses. We have viruses because we're in America. We don't want to do this, but we have them. One of the viruses that we have in America is we compare ourselves with other people at the table. We come and worship, but the whole time, we're always looking over at somebody else to wonder how we're stacking up to somebody else. We like to compare our bodies of work, our salaries, our children. <laughs> so that's what your kids are doing. Have I told you about mine? We compare... Our degrees, our houses, and we did. It's, it fractures the community, people. I, I found this in myself one time when I noticed it was easier for me to resonate with somebody when they were suffering than when they were doing well. That's competition. It's me next to somebody else. Augustine once said, we say we love, but it's always condescending love. It's let me help you up, love. It's never, wow, you're amazing, love. You know? And so the one way to break competition is start letting other people impress you. Just come to church and listen to their story. You say, I encourage them. That's not enough. People want to impress you, man. Your kids want to impress you. You let them talk. You enter their story. And you, man, I don't know how I could never do that. I'm amazed at how much encouragement and how little we let people impress us. 
But when we do, we elevate other people and the competition goes away. When somebody does really well, applaud them. You don't sit and say, well, it was easier for them. Or if you really knew how they did it, find ways to undermine it. No, no, get underneath it and elevate it and get out of the way and let the attention go towards that person. Another way that we do this, by the way, is we have a critical spirit. We come to church, we sit next to the table, but we don't ever quite face the table. Our, our, our community is somewhere else in the church or in the city. And so we go out into the city and we sometimes talk about other people in the church as if it was them. By the way, churches do this about each other all the time. Churches pick on each other in the city of Marion. They talk about what that, well, don't, they're not all that they think they are. Do you not understand? I know they're not preachers, but they're going to put this on podcast. You take about five seconds off. I'm talking to my brothers on podcast. You understand that when you pick on another church, you're still picking on the bride of Jesus Christ. Okay? You're not his friend if you don't like his bride. Leave his bride alone in any form. Churches are not your competition. The devil is your competition. Get back to it, Steve. So we do this when we elevate other churches and tell people to go there. When we pray for other churches. Sometimes our critical spirit is we face the table, but we still have our back to it. And we do this when we share negative things first. Something goes well and we're like, yeah, well, I didn't like that part about it. Well, who cares what you liked, right? I mean, we start with a negative. And, and listen, if you're young or you're just getting started or you're really, really smart, then your tendency is probably to make room for yourself in this world by creating slight differences in theology or ideology or philosophy or telling us all how the other program isn't quite what you would have done, but you understand these are your brothers and sisters that you're doing that to. I have every single one of these viruses. Sometimes we do this with a controversial spirit. The smarter you are, sit there. The smarter you are, the more you like to talk about stuff you no longer believe in. You love to pull the carpet up in other people's belief systems. Oh, I used to believe that. But then I became a man. And put away the childish things. You always stand on the ground and shoot somebody else's ideas like it was a ski. Without sending one of your own across the sky. You help the body when you tell us what you believe. And you build a cogent, articulate defense for what you believe. When you come alongside me 
and nudge me just a little bit. Steve, you were so close. And then you went off being Steve again. If you just, you help me when you do that. But if you stir up controversy, you disturb the body. Some of us have a consumer mentality, which is I build my life away from the body. Then I come to church. And the church provides a service that is an important part of my life. But my life itself is somewhere else. I have this virus. I'm a preacher. My mom said, my mom can't remember hardly anything anymore. She said, are you still in church? I said, yeah. She said, that's not enough. Are you active? I said, more than you know. She said, are your sisters? I said, no, you should know. But even as active as I am, I was doing it last week. I had last week off, and I was sitting home thinking, well, what do I do? Do I drive to Fort Wayne where I don't know anybody? Better yet, do I go online, 10 o'clock service, watch the whole thing, and just, you know, the youth strength. And then I thought to myself, no, wait a minute, Matt Beck is preaching. He's always got something really good to say. I'm going to go hear Matt. That's what I'll do. I'll take Matt's sermon back to my life. And then what happened, you guys, I came last week, and Matt had an amazing sermon, but in the second hour, I went into the old people's, I mean the senior citizens uh, class, and it was the most amazing experience. Nobody said anything profound, nobody rewrote the 95 thesis, but the way that they loved each other, and the way that they supported the leader, and the way that they prayed and the way that they encouraged us, it was powerful. And when I did that, when I stopped thinking about what I was going to get from the church, and I started thinking about what I could bring to the community, it's like I was pulling up to a table. Can I encourage you to do this? Before you leave, don't head to your cars, as some of you are prone to do. Well, show's over. Let's go. Stop in the atrium. And if you're an introvert, just stand along the side wall. Hug yourself for about five minutes. Somebody will find you. And if you're an extrovert, go look for people. Go look for people. Man, I mean this. I said to someone that lives in South Marion, I won't tell you who it is because I hope you'll do it to everybody. I said to her not long ago, how many friends do you have in college church? She's only been coming a year or two. She said, I have quite a few. I said, how many good friends do you have in college church? She said, I have a handful. I said, when you come, do you talk to your friends? She said, every Sunday, now wait for it. I said, wait a minute. Do you talk to them or do they come and talk to you? And you know what she said? She said, oh, I always talk to them first. And I went. People. Look for people. 
Say, I'm an introvert, all right? Then don't hug everybody, but hug three. Talk to three. Look them in the eye and talk through your fear and listen to their stories. Pay attention to their eyes. You're part of a body. Here's the last thing you can do. Join something. <laughs> Some of you are already members. If you're not a member, you should join. I just think you should. Say, well, I don't believe in membership. It's just me and God. If you want that, you get in this. This is a door into that. 